Hello everyone and welcome to episode 5 of the Film Score Podcast. Today I'm talking with composer Roman Molino Dunn. Now Roman has composed for numerous feature and short films, as well as commercials and even reality TV. His most recent film is Urakan, about an MMA fighter who struggles with dissociative disorder. Roman's score is quite atmospheric and droning, and it does a really good job setting up the anxiety, fear, uncertainty, and even at times, relentless aggression that appears throughout the film. Depending on when you listen to this, Urakan is available on HBO, HBO Latino, and HBO Max. So Roman and I talk quite a bit about Urakan, the film itself, how he composed it, and we also get into some of his background, some of his work philosophies, and we spend quite a bit of time talking about our shared passion for short film. Now, if you don't already, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at the Film Score. Find me on YouTube. Visit my website, just thefilmscore.com, or send me an email. I'd love to hear from you, both what you enjoy, what you don't, and. Now that I've gotten all the, the shameless self-promotion out of the way, I hope you enjoy the interview. Roman, I really appreciate you joining me, so thanks so much for jumping on here. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. First things first, how have you been doing? Doing well, you know, uh, hanging in there with everything that's going on. Yeah, but really can't complain. How has COVID and the shutdown of so many film productions affected your work? Well, I mean, I hate to say I'm I'm lucky, but I mean, I guess I am lucky for, if anything, just because I'm on the post-production side of things. I know a lot of people that are in production and they're really dealing with it a lot more than I am. So I'm lucky to be in the post-production space. I imagine it would be a problem further down the line for me, but luckily there was enough in the pipeline and things that were very close to post-production got pushed through because people realized that they were going to have delays and um, it was just time to to wrap it up essentially so it hasn't affected me too much in that regard but i also run a recording studio and i mean we had to shut down for two or three months fully um, because you can't have people inside but the good thing is a recording studio is essentially a bunch of rooms in isolation so uh, as it started to open up, we were able to do, and we're still doing it now, uh, small session sizes. So it's been okay. I mean, music's been evolving to be a little more remote anyway. So we weren't totally unprepared like a lot of other industries. It was just, just an unfortunate thing for other reasons, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. and I know there were, there were quite a few productions that were stopped mid-production that are picking back up. Maybe there'll be a little delay, but there will be enough that are going to be finishing in the next few months where that stream of work will be hopefully uninterrupted, or at least as much as possible. Yeah, and I mean, there, were, there was a lot of creative solutions. So I got pitched a lot of uh, animated films and television, but then also there was a lot of remote production in that like directors were using remote software to direct i don't really understand it as well but you know like all of my friends on social media are either directors or editors or other musicians and they would be posting about like their first time doing a remote directing i think there was creative solutions and i'm really excited to see how that influences everything going forward 
but in my experience things just didn't shut down which is really great um that, that is great yeah i'm sure in the larger scale productions where like you're building a village to do it also i i work with a lot of reality tv stars doing songs for them and they were some of those things were in production and they all had bubbles literally the people there would go and for two weeks they would stay in their bubble and then they would start doing production uh with people who hadn't left that's actually a good point and I, it seems like you're position really uniquely that you can actually take advantage of that where not everyone else can. Yeah, that's why I said I hesitate to say I was lucky because COVID was difficult for other reasons. But as far as a work standpoint, it could have been worse. Well, and, and I noticed you have um, a few short films, at least, that are either in you know the post-production in the forthcoming space. Can you tell me a little about any of those? So there are a lot of them. I mean, that's kind of, I, I love doing those. They're, they're not really the kinds of things that pay the bills, so to speak. It's usually, you know, the bigger movies and the TV and the songs that I do for artists that pay and mostly commercials. Um, but it gives you the freedom to work with really talented people on their, these shorter projects. And sometimes they turn into great relationships. Sometimes you already have a great relationship and it turns into like a pitch for a larger project. So I just finished up one where it was a film in Bangkok called Redemption, and it just came out yesterday, and the soundtrack just released. Um, but it's a big action film, and there's a lot of, like, they're actually one of the guys is a big Dutch uh, action star, but he was, like, in a few Jackie Chan movies, always plays, like, the final boss kind of guy, you know, in those movies. But anyway, they did this whole thing in Bangkok because the provisions were a little different, slash things were staggered. You know, every country mm. guy hit differently, right? And so they finished shooting before they had the close up or before they had a second wave. And so that was a completely remote job. I've never met any of those individuals except the DP who I did other jobs with. And then he moved to Thailand because they do a lot of films in Asia for these like direct to video platforms, you know, where they're doing like mid budget films, mm -hmm. but with like really talented crew and post-production. So that was cool. Yeah. Short films never slowed down really. I know they may have had the luxury, like I was saying earlier, that their crews aren't as big. They're like kind of set up to uh, have a smaller budget anyway. So this kind of thing, they're the creative budgeters. Interesting. I have recently taken much, uh, much greater interest in short films. You know, it's, it's something that I, I did a ton of as a kid and I think it fostered my interest in film. And, and I think that's a lot of, that's the case for a lot of people. So it's really nice to hear that they almost didn't stop. And, and as you described, it does make a lot of sense. So that's, I mean, that's great to hear. Yeah. And I also think, well, there has been a huge demand for content while we were all locked down. So people who were going to make something really rushed to do it because they thought maybe they could get distribution deals for these things. So I don't know how that's played out yet. And I feel like if there's a real economic uh, repercussion from this, that is even worse than it has been that maybe those short film productions will slow down because a lot of these things are self-funded. That's why they're short usually. It's not usually because people don't have a full story to tell. It's because they can only afford to do 15, 20 minutes. And since they're self-funding it, I'm a bit concerned that when the economy feels the full brunt of this, that maybe some of those shorts won't be there. But I could be wrong. It could be the other way around where these shorts are now being funded because people are desiring the content. So it kind of remains to be seen. But um, what I kind of find in my personal work is that short films are really, really great, but people desire in shorter formats, like 
the uh, addiction to the narrative. Mm. So if you have like a 10 minute short and it was awesome, you want it to continue. Like you want that world to keep going. So I really love serial stuff, even if it's very short. Like I remember on Netflix, there's that show Bruno and they're like bite-sized. Having a short film approach to serial is really cool as well. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to see where that goes because I, I think there'll be a lot of that stuff coming out. Hopefully though, it, it is very well funded because it, it's hard for people to make this stuff. And sometimes people see short films as like a, a hobby or it's not taken as seriously. Yeah, which as a an outside observer who has obviously no ability to change that, it's always frustrating. But you know, look, at, at the end of the day, it so much of this is kind of audience and demand driven. So yeah, you're right. If if people don't want five, 10, 15 minute standalone pieces, that's the market talking. Uh, so, you know, maybe maybe I'm just in the in the minority for my tastes, but who knows, well, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, maybe. I mean, they're, they tend to be very high quality because a lot of times, at least again, in my experience, it's people putting together teams of really high end professionals who are doing it either as like a real builder or they think that somebody on the project will be able to get it developed further. You know, those are the real ones that you want to chase uh, as a creative. I've done a few for this director, Angelo White. He, he's done like all these big major feature films as a VFX artist. And then to get into directing, he started doing shorts and his shorts are wild. Like they're some of the best things in my reel. And they were like five minute pieces. But since he was a VFX artist on like, Planet of the Apes or Judge Dredd, just like big blockbusters. His shorts just look, they look like a million bucks, but they're only, you know, three or four minutes. And, and the reason we did those was to get them developed. That's the goal with these things. And that's a lot of times why they're very, very good. Interesting. And, and you know, that actually makes a lot of sense because if I'm remembering right, I think the guy that was brought on to do the Evil Dead remake from a few years ago, he originally had only done like, I think it was like a 10 minute kind of animated short that was just super high quality. And that was enough to draw some attention. But yeah, I mean, it proves where there's a will, there's a way. If you put out high quality work, it doesn't have to be, you know, 90 minutes of it to, to show what you're capable of. No, absolutely. That's, that's why it's so cool looking at, you know, if you go to a lot of big directors or actors or DPs or composers or anyone to their IMDb's so many of them their first few years are just littered with short films because it's it's a great launching pad but to veer away from talking about short films a bit you just had a feature release on HBO Max Urakan how did that come about so it was kind of an organic thing kind of like how I met you on social media so I, I knew the director from social media we liked each other's work he had seen other things that I had scored and I had seen his previous work. And essentially we had been following each other for a long time. And when he said that he was working on a feature, I told him, of course, I'd love to score it. And so I scored some of the original camera tests that they were doing. And then I, he sent me the script and that was it. And we were, I was locked in pretty early on, which was unusual. A lot of times I get brought on at the very end, especially for people I haven't worked with before. Again, a lot of films that I've done, I knew the director from doing a short or something. And then a lot of feature films that I've done in the past, I got brought on at the very end when they realized they needed a composer. Sometimes 
it's really it's like you spend years doing the film and then the, in the last few weeks you're like uh oh i need to actually make sure somebody scores this instead of using like library music or you know having my buddy score it you know so with Urakan, Cassius and I just knew each other and, and we liked each other's aesthetic. So he brought me on very early on. And then after we scored the film, I mean, we just got really lucky that it was a good enough film that HBO wanted to pick it up. And so having been brought on very early, what was your approach to scoring it then? Oh, uh, so, I mean, that's always the hardest question because my answer generally is it's not my approach. It's really kind of the director's music, uh, more than kind of, it's the director's music. I'm just helping them find it. So my approach was to write some music to get to elicit a response from the director. So we had preliminary conversations about, you know, what's the aesthetic of this film? Are we going dark, which we were, and then trying to figure out the instrumentation that would res resonate with the director. What we did was we scored the overture. So essentially the opening scene which used to have this quote over it, a Nietzsche quote, and uh, was like just literally a minute of black screen because he thought it would be crazy if people, like that's not something you see generally, a film starts with just black and music. The reason that he scrapped that idea, I believe, was because he wanted eventually to get this picked up by a streaming service. And I think like Netflix or HBO, if the, end user, like a, a viewer, turns on the TV and it's just black, they might think there was an issue. <laughs> uh, so that's why we scrapped that idea. But what it did was it allowed me to really focus on what is the heart sonically of this film. And it was really hard to figure that out. In fact, normally the first thing I write uh, is not the opening of the movie because it doesn't become clear until later in the film what that will be, you know, uh, what your palette should be. Um, but on this one, we really wanted to discover that stuff. So my approach to it was to best understand what uh, he wanted for the film. And what it turned out was that he wanted to go uh, a hybrid. So between orchestral instruments and electronic instruments. And the film is about uh, a MMA fighter who has a dissociative identity disorder. So the film needed to have, uh, uh, sonically, again, in the score, it needed to have an identity disorder. There was a few ways I thought of approaching that. One was going to be this very disjunct, glitchy kind of thing. So to do it that way, but that didn't seem right. And it also would kind of put you in a very weird pigeonhole where it's very hard to progress when things are glitched out and disjointed like that. So. What we did was to have two disparate sides of the orchestration, the electronic instruments and the acoustic instruments. And sometimes they morph into one another. Sometimes they exist on their own. Oftentimes they are serving two purposes, which is to carry the narrative along, but also to help color the subtext of the film. And it's the interaction of those two parts of the instrumentation, as well as the exact content that they're performing, you know, the musical content that gives meaning to the film through music. And I think if you, if you watch the film, that dual approach becomes really apparent, especially in certain I don't want to say like kind of motif scenes, but you see there's there are multiple sequences of the film where Alonzo is in, he's in the ring and everything is quite normal. And then there's like this, there's a switch that gets flipped and Urakan comes out and there's a visual aspect to it. But then there's this really jarring in a good way, musical 
cue almost that comes in that signals it too, and then the music completely changes. So I thought that that was an interesting approach that personally I thought worked quite well. Thanks. I mean, I really wish I could take credit for it, but again, it's, you know, I'm just an instrument, you know, uh, I know how to play the music and to write it. But a lot of those concepts were coming from conversations the director and I were having. I was really happy for that. I mean, sometimes films are done so quickly that it's it's really a matter of making sure it, it's working and it, it's it's helping the story as opposed to in this, we had a long time to find mm -hmm. the true sound of it. And we tried a lot of stuff and some of it worked better and this is what we landed on. And it was kind of one of those things where like at the end of the film, we were like, oh, if only we knew this when we went into it, it would have been a much quicker process, but we left no stone unturned. And, you know, luckily you had the time to kind of figure everything out because, you know, who knows if you had four weeks to score the whole thing, it wouldn't have turned out as well as it did. So there's there might be a downside that it took a long time, but there's the silver lining that you had the time and it turned out well. Yeah, no, I was I was very happy that I was given the opportunity to A, come on so early, but then B, that, you know, this project, it, it was unlike something that is funded by a studio because this essentially was an indie film that was picked up by a major distributor. So there's a lot of luxuries there that you don't get. And, and that's why indie films are, are really great a lot of the time. I mean, big studio films sometimes have this luxury, sure. And people are at such a high level that this artistry can come through anyway. But there was no deadline. The deadline was when it's right, uh, you know, when it's artistically where he wanted it to be. So as, as frustrating as it could be to work on something for so long and never knowing what your deadline is, it was also incredibly rewarding that you met the deadline, which was it's, it's perfect, you know, or at least per perfect to uh, what he was going for. In which... At the end of the day, for a film, if it's perfect for the director, it's, it's perfect. Yeah. But that's, and that's interesting. I mean, did you, with, with that time and kind of the lack of a set deadline, did you ever find yourself really just kind of stuck toiling at the same things, figuring out what works? Or, I mean, how did that aspect go? Yeah, a little bit. Um, but I mean, for the most part, I would do a pass of the score and send it to Cassius and I get revisions and then I would do them and we uh, maybe some of them would get checked off and other ones I didn't quite hit the mark. So there wasn't a whole lot of toiling, uh, except in the very beginning. It was more a matter of just wanting to submit a, a large amount of ideas. So it wasn't exactly toiling, but it wasn't like, here's one, do you like it? It was more like, here's 15 of them, tell me which ones you like and dislike and why, and then I can zero in on things, which is a process I really like. And I, I'm not, I actually do that on a lot of other projects. Like right now I'm working on a, a YouTube original series and mm. uh, the deadline is very quick. It's very fast turnaround to the point where like, I couldn't even talk about it at first and now it's like two weeks away from airing kind of thing Jeez. or maybe three. But the same thing happened there where I did a, essentially a collection of, of scores, of cues, if you will. In that case, the production company tells me which ones they like, which ones they don't like. And then we go with a few and then the network tells me which one they like and which one they don't like. And I have to go through it again. So 
it's pretty commonplace, I think, for me to have to submit many ideas and then them distilled and torn apart and then resubmit ideas and distilled and torn apart. And that's just kind of how it goes. That makes a lot of sense. And I think for some people that might think that's a lot of involvement, but it, it seems to me that that's kind of very much how it goes. You know, it's such a collaborative process that everyone has to be involved, especially the director and there's external funding, the studio, the distributors, everyone like that. So that's that's interesting to, to hear kind of all the passes that even a few sample cues can go through before really nailing things down. And then that, that continues again and again. Yeah, absolutely. Especially the more unique a show is. So with Urakan, that was such a unique concept to have an MMA and a psychological thriller, the implications for the score, that it's, it's very unique. And then for the children's show, or the YouTube original I'm doing, it's a, it's a children's show. It's such a unique spin on a, an adult show, but for kids, that you can't just be like, hey, we need um, nursery rhymes, or uh, we need um, some action cues. It's like, can you synthesize something that encompasses multiple styles? So that's why there's that kind of review process. And it, it's, it's what's really cool, I think, about multimedia. If I was just writing music because I like to write music, I probably wouldn't end up writing an EDM song with a glockenspiel, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, it's, it's, just, it's just one of the fun parts about making music for other people. It's funny that you mention doing an EDM song because obviously my, my first experience with your music was listening to Urakan, which... A lot of it is very atmospheric, especially some of the actual warmer shots. You know, there's a scene kind of early on where I think he's just kind of riding his bike through this suburb of Miami, and it's, it's a quite warm, gentle sound. And then listening to some of your other music, you have a s series soundtrack on Spotify that I was listening to earlier, and that has a lot more almost like pure... EDM type songs and so I was I was very surprised at hearing those two extremes. I also have a, a pseudonym I go by Electro Point. The reason I use a pseudonym is because it's very different from the film music that I do and sometimes in in film and television you you do get pigeonholed a little bit which sometimes works in your favor sure so like you know I do songs for reality tv stars and their EDM songs or top 40 stuff and you don't want to confuse a director that you're going to be doing that on psychological thriller. Although there are scenes where I bring some of that stuff into in Urakan, there's like one or two moments of trap music. Hmm. Um, and I, I use some of the skill sets from that type of music. But the one you're referring to, I did this television series called All Hail Beth. And that was a crazy mish mishmash uh, <laughs> of, of genres too, because we went Iranian orchestral for that because the lead character was a Babylonian goddess who wakes up in the body of a Brooklyn hipster. So the, the score is very unique in that sense, but also because there's this Brooklyn hipsterness going on, some of the scenes in that show are like part like Bushwick parties and I'm having to bring in some of the Bushwick minimalist dance music, like synth driven throwback stuff. So sometimes it works in my favor, having that second career as a music producer for artists. But again, I, I generally use the pseudonym because some of the work that I've done in that field 
isn't the best uh, when it comes to pitching on a film, but it's becoming more and more okay, actually. You know, more films I'm doing are asking for me to also do, for lack of a better word, popular music as opposed to the film scoring stuff. So there's a lot of dance music or hip hop in scores now. And it's awesome because to me, it's all music. It makes so much sense, especially any film that's going to be set in a contemporary setting, even if it's just almost incidental music that's happening diegetically in the background with your ability to create that yourself rather than having to get someone external or go to a library. To me, it it seems like it's, it's, just an extra set of skills that you're able to pitch that gives you that much more versatility. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I I tend to view it that way. It's just, it depends on the uh, way that the director is viewing it, you know, when they're looking for an artist. Sometimes they want somebody who's a specialist in something so that they feel like they're getting the top of the line in that field. Other times they want to have somebody who's versatile. I get it. I totally understand it. Either way, I think the way that the industry is moving is that you need to be able to provide all of the audio elements for the film. I mean, even so far as like the company that I run, we do sound design and mixing as well. And I generally don't sound design and mix the same film that I'm scoring. My business partner will do that or some of our engineers. And likewise, if they're scoring something, I would step in and help or one of the engineers would because when you get to audio post-production, for a filmmaker, unless they're very experienced, they might not understand how many different departments that requires. You know, like there's the film score and then there's the sound designer, but there'll be a number of people below them dealing with the dialogue and the ADR and the mixing and then 5-1 and just on and onward until all aspects of the audio are taken care of. And I, I think the younger or less experienced a filmmaker may be, they're not necessarily aware of that and they expect all of those things. And then likewise, if somebody is very experienced and knows all of that stuff, we're able to offer it as well. But it's kind of moving that way where you you need to wear a few more hats, I think, than just being able to write for an orchestra. That makes a lot of sense. And that is, you know, really echoing what I'm hearing from other composers as well. Yeah, there's a lot going on for sure. I mean, I feel that same way when from where I'm sitting, it always helps me to learn a little bit about the other parts of the process. Like, you know, what is the cinematographer doing? Because that's not something I have a skill set in. And every time I learn it, just your respect for those departments grows immensely because of how technically talented they are on top of being artistic. And so I guess on that line, I mean, how often do you actually try to get on set in a production to see what else is going on and kind of get a feel for the in the moment of the film? Oh, it's it's barely ever happened. I wouldn't say I've not been invited, but it hasn't necessarily come up that uh, it would be a benefit for me to be there. I've definitely gotten or received dailies, mm. which are really cool, some footage from the day to see what's going on so I can get a sense of it. But unless they have a very good budget for things, people generally are very respectful of your time and they'll wait until they have something that represents or, or warrants your time to view it or to start working to it. Generally, other times people are friends and, you know, we're working on this artistically and the consideration of time isn't one of professional or non-professional. It's just, hey, check out what I'm working on. And of course I'd want to see it, you know, been to set maybe once or twice, but 
Yeah, no, it's definitely fascinating. And I think the longer I do this, the more sensitive I am to the subtleties of what I'm seeing, just the decisions that they're making, how one director does something differently than another. If I'm scoring the same kind of scene from two different films, I'll be very aware of that. Or particularly if I'm doing something for the same director more than once, you know, I'm very sensitive to you know, their voice or, or the techniques that they're using. And it would be really cool to see that in action. And so, so I'm curious because you're two of the main projects that you've mentioned, an MMA psychological thriller, and then a children's TV series. Is there any genre that really want to, that you haven't had a chance to do? Oh, wow. Um, that's a big question. I guess I, um, so for me, it's it's less about the genre of the music, actually, because I really like that every day is a bit different. And, you know, I certainly probably have strengths, but for me, it's more about the picture. Like I said, I, I like to think of myself as a versatile composer, but what really got me into being able to do films was I did a lot of commercial work and I still do that. And although it's becoming less common because they're relying more and more on libraries because mm. it's about putting out quantity of quality work quickly for the project. I'm sure some people may disagree with that because I love working with directors for commercials. I, I really do. But it's just becoming a little less common. But when you do commercial work, the genres are vast, even more so than, than film, I think. Hmm. You know, one day you're, you're just writing mariachi music and the next day you're writing trap music and it's, it's like wildly all over the place. So I, I tend to think that I'm comfortable in most genres, some more than others. And what I'm not comfortable doing, I generally hire players to help me with it. But the good thing is most films that I am working on, there is some like thread that ties it together, which is not necessarily in one genre or another. But what I really like working on are just great films. So if it's shot really well, the writing is really good, the director's really good, it's colored really well, then I'm a very excited person about the project. And you could tell me to write some style that I like less than other styles and I'd be psyched about it because your film is excellent. So that's what really excites me. It's obviously more fun working on fun projects, which is probably the cop-out answer, but I'm going to go with it. <laughs> it might be a cop-out answer, but it's still an honest answer. And I think that's going to hold true for most people in not just creative professions, but I mean, most professions, you're going to be most excited to work on something that is good and that you're, you're having fun with. So I'll take that answer. Going back to Urakan really quick, one of the things that really struck or stuck out to me was how well you were able to work with the actual film cinematography. And particularly, there are these really anxious, claustrophobic moments that the score itself really hammers in. Can you give any insight into how you crafted that? Sure. So a lot of times people, uh, when they read about the film or even just saw the trailer, they thought it was an, going to be one of two things, either an action film because of the fighting, so an MMA film, or they thought it was going to be a horror film because the score is like, it's dark at times for sure. But at, at the end of the day, it's a film, it's a psychological thriller, and it deals with people who have a mental illness. And so it's, it's a very heavy topic. And I had to go to some places in myself that I don't normally go to. There was two, two or three main techniques aside from the orchestration that I mentioned to point out the psychology of 
the individual, the, the two disparate parts of them. But aside from that musical technique, things like pulsing, broadly speaking, so some very low instruments pulsing along, either if it was a synth, just like a bass pulse, something that morphs over time, but has a constant rhythm to it. Or if it was orchestral, just very slow, repetitious bow strokes, um, but on lower instruments, that kind of thing gets your heart rate going. Mm. And when it's nestled underneath the rest of the instrumentation, you may not even notice it, but it it gets your, your heart rate going, which I, I dislike when I'm in a film and my heart starts going. I feel it's too much. I'm a little too sensitive to it. So I was aware of how effective that could be as uh, a device. And then there's some jump scares, meaning like all of a sudden you'll get like a big loud noise or something that's very distorted and dirty sounding that comes out of nowhere, which is why some people thought it was horror. So that really builds in that claustrophobic thing. But the pulsing is a big one. And then also there, I, I guess you could call it less pulsing, but more chugging happening and swelling in. So mm. uh, sometimes it would be kind of filtered and the filter would open up so that you would find that the intensity of any of those effects are growing over time slowly. There was almost always one pulse or chugger. <laughs> There's got to be a better word for it. I don't, you, you can, know, you I can coin those... one. Yeah, chugger. So, it'd be, and I sing chug because it really, the way that it was made was in the early scene, he's on the subway. And so I, uh, on the subway in New York City, I recorded some of those like train sounds. I used that as a way to create motion without using a drum set or a drum machine because I wanted it to be more organic, yet still have a bit of uh, suspense going on to it um, and a bit of unique color that you wouldn't get otherwise. Also, it was kind of organic to the film because, you know, the opening shot, you see him first get anxious on a train. So that was just a sound that worked out really well. It's done in a lot of different ways uh, using organic instruments as well, like mm. uh, bowing techniques and things. Would you say that you were recording the literal train chugging, was that as almost a reference point or was that a recording that you manipulated and used in the score itself? Oh, no, it was uh, something I manipulated and used in the score itself. So I programmed a lot of instruments by sampling uh, different sounds. So some of them were actual instruments. So a lot of times you can't afford to have string players come in over and over again and all of that stuff. So you'll record a sample of something and program it into an instrument so that you can play it back again, you know, with new content. So I did a lot of that in the very early stages to help discover the sounds of the movie where I was recording different instruments or different ways of playing instruments, but I was programming them into synthesizers so that when they were approved by Cassius for the film, I was able to then play those things back however I wanted, as opposed to like, uh-oh, now I, now I have to play that again, but with new content. And every time I send the director a cut of the cue, I have to play it live again. So, and also metaphorically or metaphysically, uh, I wanted to program that stuff into synthesizers anyway, because I was trying to combine synthetic and organic. And some of that w was non-musical or seemingly non-musical sounds like a train or even an elevator makes a crazy sound that gives you some suspense. But yeah, mechanical sounds are really good at, at building tension for sure. Um, I don't know what that is, maybe because they're closer to white noise and, and mm. noise is scary. 
Also white noise or, or mechanical sounds tend to have less of a definite pitch because again, they're closer to noise. So they'll work in whatever key you're playing in. Essentially it's percussion, you know, right? So like you don't necessarily have to tune all of your percussion to the song always. And I think that built out the psychological aspect, but it also did point a little bit at some of the horror stuff in the film, even though the only horror for sure was that internal struggle and then maybe one or two scenes, which I don't want to give away necessarily, but certainly wasn't horror in the sense of a horror film. Right. It's it's not The, the Shining or something. You yeah. know what? I, I, I actually, that's a bad example because it's, there is this shared psychological horror aspect to it in a lot of ways. Sure. But I know what you mean, and I, I think uh, everyone else will understand it too. You said you didn't like that feeling of the low physical anxiety. I've got to say, I love that when I get a physical response from music. I listen to uh, power electronics sometimes. It quite often has that really low feel that makes you almost physically sick. And I understand most people don't want that in music, but <laughs> yeah. But when it's when it's combined with film that is meant to elicit some sort of response like that as well, it's great and it, it worked really well. You know, that scene right in the beginning in particular, that creates such a good uncomfortable atmosphere that I think really sets the tone for the film. And so people that are expecting an action film are going to have that that thought kind of just destroyed in about the first 10 seconds. Yeah, that was one of the hardest scenes to do because it had to set the tone for it, for all of that. Also, the camera work is really cool. That is point of view shot, right? So you're, you're in the character. I, I love that scene. I just love the camera work there. I almost submitted that there should be no music there because I thought I couldn't do it better. <laughs> I was just like, don't, don't, you know, but then, it, but now that I see it, I love what the music that uh, Cassius pushed me to get there ended up being. And at, at times it almost wasn't music. Like I wrote a whole bunch of stuff there that was melodic or had strong chord progressions. And then what we went with was this much more textural atmospheric thing that has moments of distinct musicality, but at first you're like, what is, is this, you know, is this sound design? Is this a, but it was strings. And so I really, I'm glad that scene resonated with you because I really enjoyed that part of the film. And I think that's one of the things with a lot of people who like film music, very much I'd say the, the film music purists who really want each film score to have like six distinct melodic themes that are, going all the way back from like the Wagnerian school and there's a pushback from him on that sort of music that you're talking about but I, I have such an issue with that because at the end of the day what you're making isn't meant for someone to be listening to on their own first and foremost it's is this going to enhance the film and that scene in particular like you said you can't have this really melodic piece over top because it just it it doesn't work whereas yeah. that approach i mean that it was great thank you yeah no i was really happy with how that came out you know that's like you're saying that's not what uh this film was about you didn't want to hear my soaring string lines because it wouldn't have allowed you to go deep inside this character and i, I love being able to do more melodic things for sure but yeah i was happy that this film we were we were playing more with the inner psychology rather than the beauty you could find in the first violin. 
I like that, and my actual like personal tastes are probably a little different than most people's because I listen to a lot of just really grating extreme music, and my very brief musical career another life ago was you know in like harsh metal and drone, and so I have I I mean I have a real appreciation for that as standalone music. So when it's when it works well in a film, I mean it it offers a very different palette than just kind of traditional melodic orchestral music can can give and so i think it's i think it's it's great and i'm really happy that it seems like more films and composers are going that direction when it's appropriate yeah yeah me too it's great there's just such a breadth of creative genres going on right now um i I think it's a real renaissance for film music you know it's it's so funny you say that because on various forums and online, I see so many people complain that this year has been bad for film music, 2019 was bad for film music, like, what's going on? It's like, no, this year has had so many scores that I've liked, last year did. Last year, you listened to Daniel Lopatin's Uncut Gems or Michael Levy's Manos, and these are just really weird pieces of music that work really well, and they're not something that you'd have heard 10 years ago and yeah they're not your traditional film music but i mean they they work great and they're just so fascinating yeah if you if you want just pure thematic stuff yeah i mean you know maybe you'll be let down but if you actually appreciate the breadth that's out there and just like the pure musical diversity oh you couldn't ask for a better time yeah and it's not like those scores went away i think there's just both now which is like you're saying it's a wonderful thing yeah i mean people always want what they're used to for sure you know if you really enjoy something and it's going out of style it's hard to deal with i certainly like writing more grandiose romantic music a lot but i'll that doesn't mean that i don't want to write other types of music and that makes sense and i think maybe i'll be putting your words in your mouth but i imagine that as a composer with a diverse background it has to be more exciting to be doing various genres rather than the same thing over and over. Yeah, absolutely. I I love that all of those things are being considered viable soundtrack choices. And like you said, now you're even getting the chance to start putting more popular music, trap, EDM, things like that in, which again, just expands it even more. Yeah, like I said, you know, it's it's those things that that point out we're probably in a renaissance for this. It's, It's all music. No, absolutely. Look, I I have genres that I like more than others, but at the end of the day, I love the the diversity of music. I mean, it's it's great, and so I'm I try to listen to everything that comes out every week for film music. And the diversity on a given Friday, when when most film scores come out, it's so fun because I never have any idea what I'm going to be listening to. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, that's pretty much my whole radio now. You know, it used to be I'd listen to film scores, but then I might need to listen to something else just to get a change. But like you're saying, it's all it's all in there now. You mentioned that. Are there any scores or composers that you've really been listening to recently? Oh, wow. Uh, so, yes, because like I said, that's pretty much all I've been listening to these days. Um, and if there's anybody standing out to me at the moment, it's probably doing a disservice to everybody else I'm listening to, uh, which is probably another cop out for you here. I mean, I, I really find myself, again, just because I'm straddling the line between being a, a producer half the time and being a film composer half the time, 
looking to people who either in the past or currently are are dealing with that. Like for example, Junkie XL stuff mm. is that's always fascinating to me because there is that combination or Joe Trapanese because you're again seeing like having worked with really big recording artists and like the treatment of the Daft Punk stuff, for example, uh, or even some of his more current scores where, you know, you see those different facets of the same individual working across different media. So that stuff I've been really into, but then I've been listening to a whole lot of older scores. Like lately, I don't know what happened to me, but I started going down a John Barry hole. So like talking about classic Hollywood, and that's somebody who I appreciated for the same reason, because in, in his time, he was a big band individual, but he was also a great soaring string composer. And I found that to be fascinating, like James Bond's themes, where, you know, you have these great drums and horns, but then also like Dances with Wolves, and you have mm. neo-romantic music that is written by the same individual. And that was at a time where we don't have the technology that we have now for everybody to be as versatile. You know, that was in this person's mind. So that I find that stuff fascinating. But to answer your question in a broader sense, it's really dependent on the projects that I have coming at the moment. I'm doing this YouTube show and the references, meaning like some of the sounds that they like or other children's music or Nickelodeon shows or things from days of old. And a lot of times they're composers you've never really heard of because they were doing kids shows at a time where people didn't cross between film and television. And so they weren't the biggest film scores, but it's fascinating to hear. And then, you know, I also have that problem of that I'm writing music all day long. So uh, a lot of times afterwards, I am not, <laughs> am not listening to it. So yeah, it's it's a complicated dance between um, listening to other music and and not wanting to listen to music, but then also craving it, <laughs> craving it. Yeah, you said that was going to be a cop out answer, and you know it was, it was <laughs> anything but. No, that's that's awesome to hear, and I I do really love hearing the composer's perspective on other composers because while you're approaching it from just an enjoyment of the music aspect, there's that experience and knowledge that your average music fan or film music fan isn't going to know at all. So, yeah, so I mean, I think that's really cool. And and yeah, you mentioning some of those composers that straddle the world like you do. I think it's it's really great how diverse that skill set is. You know, like you said, 30 years ago, you wouldn't have expected a film composer to also be producing pop music or metal or anything else in that world. Yeah, exactly. And again, it's speaking to that renaissance that we're having or have been having. Yeah, and I love that stuff. And and it, it just generally sneaks in. Um, so if you listen to film scoring radio or I don't know how you were consuming it, as soon as you're listening, all of a sudden some composer who you've heard before, now their score has all of these other different new elements in some other style, but it's been film scoreized where it's maybe a little more subtle. Like if you listen to like, I, I think about uh, Black Panther as a good mm. example of the film score, you know, that had a lot of trap in it too, like the hi-hats and stuff. Yeah. But it didn't always have like booming 808s and like 909 claps and stuff going at the same time. So it would be like a subtler version of things to help it be part of the film score. I hear that a lot. I was watching Birds of Prey the other day and that Daniel Pemberton score and like 
there's also a whole lot of music supervision in that. So it actually mm. goes to trap music. Um, but then the score has a lot of that kind of stuff going on in it too. Yeah. So when you're listening to score radio or, you know, actually buying soundtracks, all of a sudden you'll see, you know, very subtle versions or sometimes not so subtle versions of these other styles in the scores. And it's interesting because uh, Birds of Prey is actually, it's, that's a really good example of that. Because I remember listening to that earlier in the year when it came out and hearing so many different genres depending on the specific character's theme in particular. Each character's theme is almost embodying kind of a film score version of a specific genre. And that's, it's so cool and it's, it's so interesting how a composer is able to take a genre and kind of melt it to a character. Yeah, no, it's a great example. I mean, that film was uh, very visually loud, that it was not the easiest film to maybe pay attention to that stuff in. That's one of those scores that listening to the score really enhanced actually watching mm. the film. Although, you know, that's hyperviolent films are often difficult for people to watch with that kind of sensitivity sometimes, but it's really great that the composer was still able to uh, be very artistic about those subtleties in an otherwise seemingly less subtle film. I always like when there's kind of a, a juxtaposition like that. Not all the time, but I, don't know, I think it does create a little more kind of like subtlety and texture rather than it being, all right, well, there's hyper-violence. Well, the music's just going to be loud and it's going to bash your head in too. Yeah. Um, shoot, you know, it looks like we're actually like well over an hour at this point. I think it's <laughs> about 8.15 on your end, so I won't, I won't keep you all night. All right. Yeah, no problem. I mean, it really was my pleasure. It's all mine. I, I really appreciate you coming on here and especially taking your evening to jump on too. It was a good that our schedule synced up so well. Yeah. And so, yeah, thanks again. And I hope you have a great night. All right. Thanks so much, Nick. All right. Take care. All right. Take care.